Mm. What's the date today? Is it 9th of November? I think it's the 9th. Well, we'll say... <laughs> for this, um, this is a, this the third and our final Dharma talk, Tuesday the 9th of November, on the topic of Zen and nature. Last time, uh, during the previous talk, I focused on the four seasons and flowers and mushrooms. This time, uh, I'd like to look at mountains and rivers, particularly mountains. Uh, when Sensei and I were training at the Rochester Zen Center, knowing of our loving of camping out west, uh, a friend gave us several books by John Muir. Uh, his dates are 1838 to 1914. And Muir was a very influential Scottish-American naturalist, author, environmental philosopher, botanist, zoologist, and early advocate for the preservation of the wilderness, wilderness areas in the United States. He co-founded the American environmentalist organization, the Sierra Club, which is still going strong. His family immigrated from Scotland when he was 11, and he soon fell in love with the mountains and forests of California. In September, 1867, he undertook a walk of about a thousand miles from Kentucky to Florida, which he recounted in his book, A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. He had no specific route, except, in his words, to go by the wildest, leafiest, and less trodden way I could find. After his long walk, he settled in San Francisco and began to explore Yosemite and the high Sierra Mountains, heading off for days with only a loaf of bread and some tea. He came from a very um, strong Presbyterian background, but in the States, he really transferred his sense of awe and wonder to the wilderness. And his writings, uh, there's such great celebrations of the, of the power of nature. Very, very inspiring. So I'd like to uh, read some quotes from, from John Muir. Climb the mountains and get their good tidings. In every walk with nature, one receives far more than one seeks. I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown, for going out, I found, was really going in. Very, very zen. For going out, I found, was really going in. Between every two pine trees, there is a door leading to a new way of life. 
The clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness. The world is big and I want to have a good look at it before it gets dark. His favourite mountains were the uh, High Sierras. And this comes from a very uh, famous, one of his most famous essays, these passages, a near view of the High Sierra. Now came the solemn, silent evening. Long, blue, spiky shadows crept out across the snowfields, while a rosy glow, at first scarce discernible, gradually deepened and suffused every mountaintop, flushing the glaciers and the harsh crags above them. At the touch of this divine light, the mountains seemed to kindle a rapt religious consciousness and stood hushed and waiting like devout worshippers. Just before the alpine glow began to fade, two crimson clouds came streaming across the summit like wings of flame, rendering the sublime scene yet more impressive. Then came darkness and the stars. Further on, I made my bed in the nook of the pine thicket where the branches were pressed and crinkled overhead like a roof and bent down around the sides. These are the best bed chambers the high mountains afford, snug as squirrel nests, well ventilated, full of spicy odours, and with plenty of wind-played needles to sing one asleep. And further on, how glorious a greeting the sun gives the mountains. To behold this alone is worth the pains of any excursion a thousand times over. The highest peaks burn like islands in a sea of liquid shade. All things were warmed and awakened. Frozen rills began to flow. The marmots came out of their nests in boulder piles and climbed sunny rocks to bask, and the dun-headed sparrows were flitting about, seeking their breakfasts. The lakes seen from every ridgetop were brilliantly rippled and spangled. The rocks, too, seemed responsive to the vital heat, rock crystals and snow crystals thrilling alike. I stood on, I strode on, exhilarated, as if never before, feeling fatigue, feeling no fatigue, limbs moving of themselves, every sense unfolding like the thawing flowers, to take part in the new day harmony. And from another essay, a, geolog a geologist's winter walk. When I reached the valley, all the rocks seemed talkative and more lovable than ever. They are dear friends 
and have warm blood gushing through their granite flesh. And I love them with a love intensified by long and close companionship. And finally, from the Yellowstone National Park, a mule was a, a great... Um, a great conservationist and uh, patron of, of national parks. And really, um, he was instrumental like, in, uh, I think, getting Yellowstone designated a national park. The winds will blow their own freshness into you, and the storms their energy while cares will drop like autumn leaves. As age comes on, one source of enjoyment after another is closed, but nature's sources never fail. Like a generous host, she offers here bringing, brimming cups in endless variety, served in a grand hall. The sky its ceiling, the mountains its walls, decorated with glorious paintings, and enlivened with music ever playing. The petty discomforts that beset the awkward guest, the unskilled camper, are quickly forgotten, while all that is precious remains. Fear vanishes as one is free in the wilderness. Moving on to Zen Master Dogen, Although 800 years apart and coming from vastly different backgrounds, John Muir would have felt a deep affinity, I'm sure, with Zen Master Dogen. In 1233, to remove himself from the capital in Kyoto, Dogen travelled south to Yamashiro province and founded Koshoji, the first monastery, Soto monastery in Japan. He stayed at Koshoji for 10 years, teaching Zazen to both lay people and monks. However, as his reputation grew, he felt pressure from the imperial authorities to return to Kyoto and so relocated to Ichizen, a remote mountain province, where he established a heiji, far from imperial patronage and sectarian disputes. Like John Muir, Dogen had a great affinity with mountains and wilderness and wrote extensively about the teachings of the insentient, the teachings of rocks and grasses, rivers and mountains. Had you look back to the great Chinese Zen teachers of the Tang Dynasty, who were often uh, named after mountains. They would establish their temples in the mountains, and then many of them took the, ma the name of, of the mountain. So we have Dongshan, Yangshan, Guishan, three examples of Chinese Zen masters. Shan is Chinese for, for mountain. In Sansui Kyo, the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, which, is, which comes from Dogen's Shobogenzo, uh, he writes, 
Mountains and rivers right now are the actualization of the ancient Buddha way. From time immemorial, the mountains have been the dwelling place of the great sages. Wise ones and sages have made the mountains their own chambers, their own body and mind. However many great sages and wise ones we suppose have assembled in the mountains, ever since they entered the mountains, no one has met a single one of them. No one has met a single one of them. There's a great um, translator of, of Chinese poetry and uh, Mahayana texts, Red Pine, a.k.a. Bill Porter. And one of his earliest books was Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. And he went deep into the mountains around China to, to find these uh, Chinese hermits living in very, very remote places. And one hermit, he found, had never heard of the cult cultural revolution. This was in the 1980s, late 1980s. And he said to Red Pine, who is this Mao you keep talking of? That's how isolated he was. Continuing with Dogen. Although mountains seem to belong to the country, they really belong to those who love them. Uh, a little bit of Kiwis in history. The first Zen teacher to come to New Zealand, Aotearoa, was Joshu Sasaki Roshi. And his main center was, uh, it still is, at Mount Baldy in California. And he did several sessions in New Zealand uh, in the 70s and early 80s. And a small group formed around him, spearheaded by uh, New Zealand's first Zen priest, Mike Radford. They got Sasaki Roshi out here. And he, he gave Sesheen in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch and saw quite a bit of the country and was impressed, of course, by the scenery of Aotearoa. And so he said to his small group, buy me a mountain. I want you to buy me a mountain. <laughs> and, of course, they had to tell him that that wasn't possible. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he, they couldn't get him a mountain. I mean, they were prob probably between the 20 or so of them, they didn't have much money anyway. But he wanted a mountain. Dogen again. There are mountains hidden in jade. There are mountains hidden in swamps. There are mountains hidden in the sky. There are mountains hidden in mountains. Mountains hidden in mountains. I think back um, being in the mountains in the States in winter, that the, the bones of mountains are really revealed uh, when the leaves fall from the trees. Uh, one of the real delights I had in 2000, uh, yeah, 
2020, uh, when I was the writer-in-residence at the Waikato University of Waikato, I travel around the Waikato quite a bit, and many of us think of the Waikato as a big flat plain, but it's got a number of really interesting mountains that uh, I got used to. Kaupuri Mountain, which is uh, very important for Ngāti Maniapoto, the, the burial place of the Māori kings. The great peaks of Porongia, very powerful mountain range. And south of Porongia, there's uh, Kakepuku, which is this beautiful volcanic cone that you can see uh, south of Te Aramutu. And I climbed Kakepuku, and it's a great climb. It's about three hours to the, to the top, uh, not, not too strenuous. And you look over the whole Waikato, and you look north to uh, Porongia. And when I climbed, there was a thick fog, and I climbed above the fog. And so there was just a sea of fog below me, and rising up out of the fog, like an ocean of fog, was the peaks of Porongia. And in Māori uh, legend, the Patu Pairahi, or the spirit beings, are said to live at the top of Porongia. And on days of fog, when the fog forms a bridge, they travel from Porongia to Kakepuku. So if, if you've, uh, anyone's feeling like a really good day hike, I, I can really mend Kakepuku. It, uh, the, the top half has been reforested with secondary growth and it's now attracting a lot of bird life, hawks and, and other birds. Finishing up with Dogen, again from the Mountains and Rivers Sutra. The mountain possesses complete virtue with nothing lacking. Therefore, it is always safely rooted yet constantly moving. The toes of the various mountains walk over the water, and the water splashes beneath their feet. Now we'll take up our first koan, which is Case 100 from the Shoyoroku, the Book of Serenity. A monk asked, Master Langye, the original state is intrinsically pure and clear. How does it suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and the great earth? Langye said, the original state is intrinsically pure and clear. How does it suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and the great earth? Many koans deal with the mind and how we perceive the world. This is one of them. The monk asks a question. The original state is intrinsically pure and clear. How does it suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and the great earth? Taking the words literally out of the monk's mouth, Master Langye transforms them. How does he transform them? That's at the heart of the koan. On the surface, it seems that he's just repeating the monk's question. The original state 
is intrinsically pure and clear? How does it suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and the great earth? How does the mind of Langye differ from the mind of the monk? We can say that Langye is a mirror to the monk, reflecting back his question. No doubt the monk is caught up in duality of pure and impure, emptiness and form. And with this duality comes separation. The monk is separated from the mountains and rivers and the great earth. As a corrective, Langye gives voice to the mountains and rivers and the great earth. In connection with this, uh, this koan, there's a very famous saying by an early Chinese master, Qing Yuan Wei Xin. Before one studies Zen, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. After a first glimpse into the truth of Zen, mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. After enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains and rivers once again rivers. Rain. It's once again rain. One category of koans are the gonsen koans. Gonsen literally means the study and investigation of words. With these koans, we have to penetrate into the words of the masters and understand their subtle meaning. Insight is gained through the words themselves. So I'd like to look briefly at two uh, gonsen koans that deal directly with nature. The first one is from the Mumon Khan, case 24. A monk asked the priest Feng Shui, speech and silence are concerned with equality and differentiation. How can I transcend equality and differentiation? Feng Shui replied, I always think of Changnan in March. Partridges chirp among the many fragrant flowers. I always think of Changnan in March. Partridges chirp among the many fragrant flowers. Feng Shui, uh, his dates are 896 to 973, so towards the end of the Tang Dynasty. He was a disciple of Nanyuan, and he transmitted the Linji, Rinzai, Zen lineage to future generations. Speech and silence are translations of the Chinese characters Wei and Li. Taoist terms that go back to the very beginning of Buddhism in China when it absorbed many teachings of Taoism. Li can mean 
basic pattern and way actualization or the fundamental and the manifest or absence and presence or emptiness and form or here in our koan silence and speech the monk is asking how he can transcend all such dualities and Feng Shui quotes two lines from a Tang Dynasty poem by Tu Fu, who is described as the greatest of Chinese poets. It's a poet from the Tang Dynasty. In one of his poems, Night, Tu Fu, whose dates are 712 to 770, he wrote, Tribal songs arise, riffling the stars. Here, at the edge of heaven, I inhabit my absence. Here, at the edge of heaven, I inhabit my absence. It's a good line for those of us who are working on Mu. I inhabit my absence. When uh, Feng Shui quoted Tu Fu's lines, I always think of Chen'an and March, partridges chirp among the many fragrant flowers. He was inhabiting his own emptiness, and from there he brought forth the partridges chirping and the fragrant flowers. It's another poem by Tu Fu with the title Opposite a post station the boat moonlight the boat, the boat moonlit beside a monastery My boat mirroring a clear bright moon deep in the night I leave lanterns unlit a golden monastery beyond green maples, a red post tower here beside white water, faint drifting from a city, a crow's cry fades, full of wild grace, egrets sleep, white hair, a guest of lakes and rivers, I tie blinds open, and sit alone, wide awake. And our second Gonsen Koan is from the Hikiganroku, case 82. A monk said to Da Long, the physical body ultimately decomposes what is the indestructible dharma body? The physical body ultimately decomposes. What is the indestructible dharma body? Da Long said, The mountain flowers bloom like brocade. The valley streams are as blue as indigo. Again, another very poetic response. 
The mountain flowers bloom like brocade, the valley streams as blue as indigo. The Dharma body is, uh, there's a Mahayana teaching of the three bodies of the Buddha, the non-historic Buddha. The Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Namarnakaya. The Dharma body is the Dharmakaya, the body of emptiness, infinity that is charged with possibilities. The Sambhogakaya is the reward body, the body of the Buddha, the non-historic Buddha, that is believed, that is beheld by other deeply enlightened beings, bodhisattvas at the final stage of their cultivation. And the Namarnakaya is the physical body of the Buddha, the historic Buddha, also the body of you and me. It's each of us, our unique form. That's the Namarnakaya. And of course, these three bodies are a one body. However, the monk views the Dharma body and his physical body as two separate entities. Like the monk in our previous case, he's stuck in duality. So Dalong compassionately shows him a way to leap free. Everything is saturated with color and everything flows. The mountain flowers bloom like brocade. The valley streams are as blue as indigo. We don't have any dates for this teacher, Da Long, who is a Chinese Tang Dynasty teacher. But we do have one, uh, one other dialogue that points to his poetic nature. A monk asked Da Long, what is subtlety? Da Long said, the wind brings the murmuring of the stream to my pillow. The moon casts the shadow of the hill at my bedside. Hmm. I'm sure um, John Muir would appreciate that verse. John Muir just loved to, to camp out at night under the stars on a, a bed of pine needles. This, um, the mountain flowers bloom like brocade, the valley streams are as blue as indigo, makes me think of a famous poem by Su Tung Po, whose dates are 1012 to 1086. So he's a Song Dynasty uh, poet, pra practitioner of, of Zen. And Su Tong Po was enlightened when he walked in the mountains at night and heard the sound of streams flowing in the darkness. This is his enlightenment verse. The sound of the valley streams, eyes long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. In the night I heard a myriad sutra verses uttered. How can I now relate to others what they mean?
his long, broad tongue and his pure body refer to the Buddha. The Buddha embodied in the sound of the valley streams and in the forms of the mountains. So I'd like to read some more poems by Su Tong Po. Flower Shadows. Layer upon layer on the alabaster terrace, I tell the boy to sweep them up in vain. Just as the sun takes them away, the full moon brings them back again. Those are the shadows. Just as the sun takes them away, the full moon brings them back again. This one has a, a long title. Inscribed on a wall at a small monastery on Cragged Mountain of Blue Ox Ridge, a place human traces barely reach. Hurrying our horses home last night, passing dikes of sand, we found kitchen smoke trailing fragrance out across ten miles. And this morning, we wander Blue Ox Ridge, walking sticks in hand, cliff wall cascades, drumming the silence of a thousand mountains. Don't laugh at the old monk. It's true he's deaf as a dragon. But the end of this hundred-year life, who isn't a pitiful sight? And tomorrow morning, long after we've set out again for the city, he's still, he'll still be there among white clouds of this poem on the wall. He'll still be there. He'll still be here among white clouds of this poem on the wall. Sort of like a cinematic merging of the, the white clouds and the, the poem on the wall. Another one. Inscribed on a wall at Thatch Hut Mountains West Forest Monastery. Seen from one side, it's a ridge line. Seen from another, it's a peak. Distant or near, high or low, it never looks the same twice. But if I just can't recognize Thatch Hut Mountain's true face, here's why. I am myself at the very center of this mountain. I am myself at the very center of this mountain. And finally, at Brahma Heaven Monastery, you can only hear a bell out beyond mist. The monastery, deep in mist, is lost to sight. Straw sandals wet with dew of grasses, a recluse wanders, never to rest. He's simply an echo of mountaintop moonlight, coming and going, night after night. Uh, these translations of the Chinese verses are by David Hinton. 
David Hinton is a wonderful modern uh, translator of Chinese verse. Uh, I really recommend his, his translations. Over the last eight years or so, he's, offered, he's opened up a whole vista of Tang dynasty and Song dynasty poetry that uh, for non-Chinese readers, um, it's just really wonderful. Uh, much more so than uh, haiku and um, Japanese poets. More, much more than, than the Japanese poets, really. The Chinese poets of the, the Tang and the Song dynasties were uh, drawing upon their own Zen practice a lot of the time. They'd really integrated their practice into, into their writings and their ramblings in the wilderness. Of all the great uh, Japanese haiku poets, uh, only Basho had his Zen practice. Uh, so yes, I really recommend David Hinton's translations. He writes, originating in early 5th century common era, and stretching across two millennia, Chinese tradition of rivers and mountains, Shan Shui poetry, represents the earliest and most extensive literary engagement with wilderness in human history. Mm. It's quite something. The earliest literary engagement with wilderness in human history. The Tang Dynasty is known as the, the Golden Age of Zen. Um, most of the, the Zen teachers that, that, we, that we quote in, in Taishan Dharma talks, like um, Zhao Zhou and um, Yunmen and Lin Shi, come from the Tang Dynasty, and also happens to be the golden age of Chinese poetry, too. The two coincided. Uh, and they had this rivers and mountains school of poetry. And um, many of the poets, when they were in the mountains, would visit Zen teachers or monks who were their friends uh, and, write, and write poems at their temples or in their little retreat huts. So I'd like to, to end up, I'd like to read some more Tang Dynasty poems. First by very famous poet Wang Wei, who states uh, 701 to 761. Wang Wei's, this is David Hinton again, Wang Wei's poetry is especially celebrated for the way he could make himself disappear into a landscape. He was also an accomplished painter. After enjoying a long and successful career in the government capital of Chang'an, he retired to a hermitage by Wheel Room River. The first poem is Morning, Morning Min Hao Jan, who was a fellow poet uh, who died before Wang Wei. My dear friend, nowhere in sight, this Han River keeps flowing east. Now, if I look for old masters here, I find 
empty rivers and mountains. So there's an echo of Dogen there. No, no hermits to be found. Now, if I look for old masters here, I find empty rivers and mountains. Offhand poem. I'm lazy, ancient. There's no company here but old age. I no doubt painted in some former life, roamed the delusion of words in another, and habits linger. Unable to get free, I sometimes became known in the world. But my most fundamental name remains this mind, still here, beyond all knowing. But my most fundamental name remains this mind, still here, beyond all knowing. Hmm, what is this mind? It's like the koan. What is your true face before your parents were born? He mentions mourning Men Hao Chang. Uh, so here's a poem by Men Hao Chang, who states uh, 689 to 740. Like John Muir, Min Hao Zhang spent many years rambling among the mountains and rivers, and like Wang Wei, he was a serious practitioner of Chan, of Zen. The poem's title, Sent to Chao, the Palace Reviser. You polish words in rue-scented libraries, and I live in bamboo leaf gardens, a recluse, wandering each day the same winding path, home to rest and quiet, no noise anywhere. A bird soaring the heights chooses its tree, but the hedge soon tangles impetuous goats. Today, things seen becoming thoughts felt, this is where you start forgetting words. Mm. Chinese poetry is very compact. There's a lot goes into a few lines. Today, things seen become thoughts felt. This is where you start forgetting words. And the last Tang Dynasty poet poet we'll look at is Li Po, whose dates are 701 to 762. Li Po's life was characterized by whimsical travel, wild drinking, and a gleeful disdain for decorum and authority. One night, drunk in a boat, he fell into a river and drowned while trying to embrace the moon. Here's one poem by Li Po. Reverence Pavilion Mountain, sitting alone. The birds have vanished into deep skies. A last cloud drifts away. All idleness, inexhaustible, this mountain and I gaze at each other, it alone remaining.
inexhaustible, this mountain and I gaze at each other, it alone remaining. Two, um, it's a way of uh, wrapping up this series of three Dharma talks on Zen and nature. Here's a, a Chinese saying. Keep a green bower in your heart and the singing birds will visit you. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>